0: When Dhar Upandita first came to IMS in 1984. At one point, he asked a group of us what we thought were just what was the essence of the Buddhist teachings—one of those little Dharma snap quizzes—and some of us said the Four Noble Truths, you know, and some of us said the Eightfold Path, or the Three Characteristics. Then he referred to something the Buddha said just before he died, and it's found in the Parinibbana Sutta, that is the Sutta uh, describing the events just before uh, he passed away. This is what the Buddha said at that time. Amongst those matters which I have discovered and proclaimed should be thoroughly learnt by you, practiced, developed, and cultivated so that this holy life may endure for a long time, that it may be for the benefit and happiness of the multitude, out of compassion for the world, for the benefit and happiness of devas and humans. And what are those matters? They are the four foundations of mindfulness, the four right efforts, the four roads to power, the five spiritual faculties, the five mental powers, the seven factors of enlightenment, and the Noble Eightfold Path. Then the Lord said to the monks, And now, monks, I declare to you, all conditioned things are of a nature to decay. Strive on untiringly. Well, that list comprises what are called the 37 principles, the 37 factors of enlightenment. So the Buddha, in a way, summed up you know, all 45 years of his teachings in those 37 Principles of Enlightenment. And the factor that arises the most often, that is listed the most often, more than any other in that list, is the factor of effort. In all those various lists, effort appears nine separate times. So what is this effort for? What is what is the end of our making this effort? Again, in the Buddha's words, so this holy life does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit, but it is this unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of this holy life, its heart would and its end. The unshakable deliverance of mind. Effort is the root of our practice, it's the root of accomplishment, it's the root of our realizing this unshakable deliverance of mind. Because without effort, we simply stay lost in the habit patterns, the very deeply rooted habit patterns of our conditioning. But it's necessary to explore both the meaning and the application of effort. Because wrongly understood and wrongly applied, it becomes confused with some unwholesome factors. Wrongly understood, effort can be confused with ambition. It can be confused with expectation in practice. And we know, I think, from our experience, that over-efforting, when we're in that mode, that over-efforting leads to agitation, it leads to tension. It leads to a kind of restlessness. On the other hand, too little effort, when we're really being lazy in our efforts, when we're not exerting ourselves in the proper way, that itself, too little effort, leads to discouragement, because we're not progressing, nothing much is happening, we're just carried away by the habits of our mind. So too little effort leads to discouragement, it leads to disappointment, it leads to doubt. What is the purpose of all this? What am I doing here? When we find the right balance, when we really discover for ourselves what right effort means, not too tight, not too loose, we find that it energizes our practice. It energizes our lives. Right effort is on with leading. We're not just settling into comfortable habit patterns. You know, there's a strong willingness, a strong interest in really exploring the edges, exploring the boundaries of what is comfortable, of our comfort zone. Now, When right effort is there, when it is in balance, it begins to arouse in us a very strong sense of spiritual urgency and not wanting to waste time. You know, often in Zen, in the Zen tradition, they really talk about Dharma practice as addressing the great question of life and death. So this is not a trivial undertaking. So much of our practice you know, over the years is learning how to balance our energy, is learning how to balance effort, knowing when and how to strive, really to push, to exert ourselves, and when to open and relax. As part of our learning about this, it's helpful to recognize where we are in the practice. Now, in the beginning, and whether it's the beginning people just starting their meditation practice or the beginning of a retreat, because in some way we we start again each time, it's not uncommon to find that our minds are tumbling like a waterfall, just this cascade of thoughts and images and feelings, you know, being caught again and again, very distracted. At that time, the effort that's needed is called launching effort. You know, in the image, it's a great image. I don't know if you've ever seen, you know, film clips or maybe in person, of. You know, when they send the rockets, the satellites into space, and you see the rockets being launched from the ground, the huge thrust that's necessary to lift this to lift this massive machine off the ground into space. So there's a kind of launching effort. That quality of effort is needed. You know, when our minds are just when their minds are unconcentrated, full of distraction, we need a powerful force to counter that. It's like reining in that monkey mind. And we do it in ways that you're very familiar with. I'll just review them. This This is not new to you. But really using the breath as a primary object, staying with the breath as a way of focusing the attention. You know, this last month when Sayadaw was here, he used very strong language to describe this launching stage, you know, this kind of effort. He talked about attacking the object and capturing the object and going after the object. You know, It's not enough just to kind of be lackadaisical, oh yeah, I hope I find the breath sometime. We need to arouse that kind of determination, that kind of effort. And in this, when we do this, we develop two janic factors, which are the core of concentration. You know, the two janic factors of vitaka and vichara. That is, initial application, sustained application. In other language, we could call it connecting with the object, and then sustaining our attention on the object. It's like a bee going to a flower and then circling around the flower. So in this stage of launching effort, where we really are putting forth a lot of energy to get the mind concentrated, to bring it back to the present moment, so it's not just wandering all over the place, we practice connecting with each breath or with each half breath. Connecting with the beginning and then that effort to sustain the attention for just that half-breath. Connect again the beginning of the out-breath and sustain the attention. We can also apply this launching effort not only in our sitting practice, working with the breath, but also as we're moving about in the day. It really has to do with developing a closeness of attention. Now, one of the great meditative diseases is called more or less mindful. You know, we're going through the day, and we're kind of mindful. We're more or less there. We're more or less present. (coughs) But that's not enough to launch the rocket into space. That's just going to keep it kind of hanging around near the ground. We need a closeness of attention. We need that kind of effort. So we are dropping into our body and really feeling the sensations of the movement as we move about. It's one thing to be aware that we're moving and quite another thing to recognize and feel the sensations in that movement. This kind of effort very much brings us into the present moment in a very precise and full-bodied way. Our attention is no longer kind of floating in outer space someplace. It's right in our bodies. This is a practice we can do. This, this whole place is set up to do this. At one point, I was, I was practicing with... Uh, out in Nepal and my mind was just the conditions were the opposite of this place and the conditions were really really difficult you know there were five of us in a room on a cement floor next to the latrine the food wasn't too good everything it was noisy and my mind was just got into this complaining mode you know and just a lot of a lot of thinking and internal grousing and so at one point I went into an interview and I said what was going on inside I was only instruction to me was be more mindful you know and I thought thanks a lot (laughs) but then I went outside in the walking and I tried it I actually tried to be more mindful to drop right into my body to feel the sensations carefully lo and behold I stop getting so lost in all of those wandering thoughts. Mindfulness works. But we have to make the effort to actually practice it in a careful and precise and close way. Now, in, in the kind of reporting we do with Saidao, you need to report... On the rising, falling, the lifting, moving, placing, and the walking, really report what the sensations are. Well, for the longest time, you know, I was doing the walking meditation, and the sensations in the lifting were very clear, and the sensations in the coming down were clear, but that moving forward, you know, maybe you have better luck with it than I did, but the moving, I knew I was moving forward. So I was really being mindful. I was aware of the movement. But what the sensation of that movement was, what's what's that sensation? I spent weeks (laughs) doing that walking meditation really trying to discover the sensations in the leg of that movement. Well, that kind of precision, really, that kind of interest, Brought the mind very, very close. And it was a very interesting discovery when I could finally drop, oh, that's what that is. You know, when Sharon used to go for interviews, <laughs> I was relentless with her. You know, she would go and be ready to give a report, and he wasn't interested in her report at all. He would say, You know, what did you experience when you were putting your shoes on? She didn't know. You know so, and then he, you know, he said, OK, come back next time. So she'd come back with knowing what the sensations were with her shoes, and then he wouldn't ask her about that. He'd ask her, you know, what are the sensations when you brush your teeth? And for weeks this went on you know, as a way of training to really be attentive through the day, moment to moment. It doesn't mean being grim at all. Grimness is not mindfulness. You know, it doesn't have to be heavy, and it doesn't have to be over-efforting. It can be like you know, some beautiful classical dance you know, of slow movement, where we're really in our bodies, and we're feeling it carefully, closely, all through the day. This can become our way of being. So this, is, this is part of right effort, what it means and to learn how to do it with a lightness of heart and an impeccability of attention. (coughs) As the mind begins to settle down through this kind of launching effort, where we really do get connected, we're present, we're here in a careful, sustained way, then we become more aware of the hindrances that come up. Now, when we have a dirty cloth, if a cloth is all gray and dirty, but uniformly so, we might not even really notice that it's dirty. But as, as, it begins, as we begin to clean it, as we begin to wash it, and parts of it get cleaner, then the, the dirty spots really stand out. Well, in exactly the same way, ordinary people out in the world, if you ask them, You know, does your mind wander? Oh, no, no, I know what I'm doing. People have no idea what's going on in their minds. But we come here, we begin to get more still, more concentrated as we really connect with our experience. Then the calaces, the defilements, the hindrances become very clear to us. So at this point, we need another kind of effort. It's no longer the launching effort. We're launched. You know, we're present. We're in our bodies. The next kind of effort is called the boosting effort. It's like, it's like the booster rocket. You know, it's already lifted off the ground, but it needs another thrust to get farther out into space. So we're, we're going. We're connected. We're pretty mindful. And we need a boosting effort, a boosting energy to work with and understand and overcome the hindrances or the different kalesas, the defilements. Now, there are quite different styles for working with these hindrances. Now, one style is the energy of the fierce warrior. And this is definitely Saira Upandita's style. <laughs> During one of his talks, it was some of the language he used in talking about working with the and you know, he would say, no mercy to the defilements. Crush them, grind them. You know, and it was like, okay, there's the enemy. And... So that's one approach. <laughs> and it's the fierce approach. It's saying, yeah, these are sources of suffering. I'm not going need to need to do battle with them. Not to be overcome by them. And even the Buddha, you know, the he, Buddha was a great warrior. And just as a bodhisattva, this is, this is kind of the classic statement of heroic effort. He said, If the end is attainable by human effort, I shall not rest or relax until it is attained. Let only my skin and sinews and bones remain. Let my flesh and blood dry up. I will not stop the course of my effort until I win that which may be won by human ability, human effort, human exertion. And so this is a great spiritual warrior, you know, in calling up that kind of effort and energy. But there's another approach as well, in case we're not, you know, in the... in the warrior graduate school and the other approach we might call not the fierce warrior but the gentle warrior and this approach is very much embodied by Thich Nhat Hanh you know and he he talks about another way of being with the hindrances the defilements so I'll just read one little piece from Thich Nhat Hanh He said, the the Buddhist attitude is to take care of anger. We don't suppress it. We don't run away from it. We just breathe and hold our anger in our arms with utmost tenderness. The anger is no longer alone. It is with our mindfulness. Anger is like a closed flower in the morning. As the sun shines on the flower, the flower will bloom because the sunlight penetrates deeply into it. Mindfulness is like that. If you keep breathing, mindfulness particles will infiltrate the anger. When sunshine penetrates a flower, the flower cannot resist. It has to open itself and show its heart to the sun. If you keep shining your compassion and understanding on it, your anger will soon crack, and you will be able to look into its depths and see its roots. Now, it's helpful not to take sides in this and to think one approach is right and the other approach is wrong. The fierce effort, fierce warrior, the gentle warrior, at different times, each one of those approaches may be appropriate for us. If we're filled with a lot of self-judgment, if that's the pattern in our mind, we're filled with self-hatred, it might not be such a good idea to get into that mode of thinking we have to crush the Khaleces and kill the and because it's it's a very short step from thinking the defilements are bad to thinking that we're bad. And then we get caught just further in the loop of self-judgment and self-hatred. So if that's our mode, if that's our general pattern, we might well want to use the more gentle approach, holding it tenderly, holding it with compassion. For, For other people or us at different times, you know, if we're simply indulging unskillful, unwholesome states of mind, indulging these repetitive patterns again and again and again, at that time it may be more helpful to take the sword of wisdom. You know, not, to, oh yes, lots of compassion for this. You know, if, if we're just lost in the morass of it in an indulgent kind of way, then we have to become the fierce warrior. We take our sword of wisdom you know, and really cut their heads off. Making an effort, making a strong effort to catch the arising of these hindrances. Not to kind of just, you know, oodle along as they're happening, but to, to have that strong effort to see when they arise, to catch them right in the beginning, and not indulging the endless fantasies, you know, or the the planning, the endless planning, or you know, old grudges, going over old grudges and hurts and ill will. At one point in my practice I was going through quite a difficult time, and there was a situation where there was a lot of anguish coming up, anguish and self-blame. And it was so deep and so strong that I would get caught for long periods of time, like 15 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour in these stories and scenarios. Well, after a certain point of seeing this happen again and again, I just, I aroused this very strong determination, strong resolve, catch the initial thought, catch the triggering thought for this whole pattern. And when I had that strong determination, found that my mind could actually do that when I was keeping an eye out for it, watching for it. And as soon as that first thought came, I was right on it. And it didn't go on then. It really was a way of cutting it. So we want to learn to use both approaches to see when each is appropriate. Sometimes it's being very gentle, very soft. Allow and compassion, as Tikhonan said, and sometimes it's being quite fierce, being a warrior in that way. In both cases, whether we're taking the fierce approach or the gentle approach, a key aspect of wisdom. Is the realization that when we are lost in the hindrances, lost in a defilement of mind, we are suffering? That's the reason for working with them, because they're a state of suffering. And the Buddha was very clear. He said, When these five hindrances are unabandoned in oneself, a bhikkhu that is one who is practicing, all of us, sees them respectively as a debt, a disease, a prison house, slavery, and a road across a desert. But when these five hindrances have been abandoned in oneself, that is seen as freedom from debt, healthiness, release from prison, freedom from slavery, and a land of safety. These these metaphors are not just kind of philosophical concepts. They actually reflect the experience, the feeling, of the mind either contracted, the prison of being contracted in the hindrance, or released, or freed from them. So pay attention to really what they feel like. Indulging an unwholesome mind state is really like holding on to a hot burning coal. You know, and we could use all kinds of justifications in our mind or rationalizations of why it's a good idea to be indulging the state. But who is it that's suffering? And so we really want to see the contraction, the suffering nature of the hindrances. And when through this booster effort, you know, the the second kind of effort, and we see that we actually can work with the hindrances, we don't have to be lost in them, we can let go of them, Through, through either of these two approaches it brings about a tremendous sense of confidence. We begin to see, yes, things that are arising in my mind are workable. I can be with this. I can work with it. I can learn how to free the mind. So that that brings a lot of joy in the practice, even as the hindrances arise, because we don't see them as being so overpowering. So as we make this boosting effort and begin overcoming or abandoning the hindrances the unskillful states you know through through whatever skillful means seems appropriate instead of the mind tumbling like a waterfall at this stage now it begins to flow on quite smooth everything is flowing smooth it's flowing gentle <coughs> gently it's like You know, a very deep river that flows along. It's very calm on the surface. So this time in practice, when things are going along smoothly and easily, we need to explore a more subtle kind of right effort. Because here, things are going along effortlessly. Our body is more open usually. You know, the energy is flowing. The mind is relaxed. But if we're not careful at this point, it's easy to stay in this stage for a very long period of time. So we need the third kind of energy, and that is called sustaining energy, a sustaining effort. That which keeps us moving forward at that time when our practice is really going quite well. We need this third kind of effort, this more subtle kind of effort to keep us moving forward so that we don't simply start going you know, in an eddy. Do you know what an eddy is in a river? It's when, it's when the current you know, off to a side starts going in the reverse direction. And when you get caught to the main current. So you're going down if you're caught in an eddy, then you just keep circling around again and again in the eddy until somehow you come out of it and go forward again. So how to work with this third kind of right effort, the sustaining effort? There's one principle in practice which is critical to understanding effort at this stage, and that is the principle that effort creates energy. So, usually we think that we need energy to make effort, but this is just the opposite. This is understanding that effort creates energy. So just a very simple example of that. You know, if you're feeling very tired, and this is in your normal life, not what you would do here. But if you're feeling very tired, and you go out and do some vigorous exercise, the very effort of making the exercise energizes the whole system. Well, here we apply the same principle on more subtle levels. One way is to see that by extending one's effort a bit, even when it's difficult. The extension of that effort actually brings more energy to our practice. And I had a very striking example of this in my India days when I was practicing with Goenka You know, in his schedule, we'd get up at four, and then there would be a two hour sitting before breakfast. And so I would get up with everybody else, and I'd hurry to the meditation hall to get a spot against the wall. And then I'd begin my sitting, and about after half an hour, I'd start leaning against the wall, and very shortly afterwards, I was asleep. And this went on for days. The same pattern. You know, but I kept getting up, but I started thinking, this is stupid. Why, why do I still get up just to go to sleep in the hall? Better sleep. I could sleep till breakfast, and then at least I'd be really alert during the day. But I didn't listen to that thought. And I kept getting up, same pattern, same pattern, until one morning I went in there, sat down, and I was totally awake and alert the whole time. And from that time, that energy has been there, no matter what time I get up. And it was just a good example. So even when we think nothing is happening and it's not bearing fruit, the effort we make to extend ourselves a bit, the effort creates energy. Another way we create energy, we put more energy into the system. When things are going smoothly, it's flowing along. You're just watching the energy in the body, the energy sensations, and it's effortless. At those times, take some time when you come back to rising and falling. Even if it's not the predominant object. Because there's a certain effort that's needed to come back whether it's the rising falling or the in and out and the effort to come back to it for periods of time you no know, for five minutes ten minutes fifteen minutes just coming back to that object you'll feel the whole system get more energized and the last way of this developing this sustaining energy Putting more into the system when things are going well. It's a very interesting understanding of the nature of thought. Because my experience in practice, you know, when things are going along, going smoothly, it's pretty effortless. I'm just sitting there, you know, being with what's happening. At that time, the general sense is that thoughts are not really much of a problem you know they come and they go but they're, they're pretty quick the scene is pretty ephemeral and so we don't bother much with them they're just they're just passing through and we may get caught in them for a short time but it doesn't seem to interrupt the flow well something I noticed really strong just in this last you know the the teacher retreat that we did here this is something that I had seen before but became very clear to me this time that even when our practice is going well or it's pretty effortless and it's just flowing right along when we're lost in a thought even for a short period of time it's as if it slows the process down and the image that came to mind and I mean this not literally but just kind of as a as an image to describe it, it felt like the times when I was lost in a thought felt like that was at the speed of sound. And now when I was resting in awareness, that felt like the speed of light. And then you know, I get lost in a thought again, and seeing it in this way, I could actually feel the the slight congestion of mind. Right? Even though from another perspective, when I wasn't paying that careful attention, oh, the thoughts come and go, and it's not interrupting much. So when I saw this, it just inspired me more to add that extra little bit of effort, of right effort. Not, not to simply get lost in the thought, if, if I could help it. <laughs> You know, if I could bring enough mindfulness, enough awareness, not, not to indulge it, thinking that it didn't matter. I hope this is clear. This, this is, I'm just kind of sharing with you, you know, it's what came up for me very clearly in my practice. And when I dropped back into the awareness, out of being lost in a thought, again, it felt like dropping back into a much higher energy system where things were really unfolding in a more profound way. So these are the three kinds of effort. There's the launching effort, just, and that's that strong effort to get us into the present when our minds are very distracted, when we're, when we're really not in the moment. And there's the boosting effort. You know, when, Once we're present, But the energy needed to overcome or to work with the hindrances, the defilements, whether in a fierce way or a gentle way, whichever is appropriate. And then the sustaining effort. That's the most subtle kind. When our practice is going well, just that additional introduction of energy to keep our practice unfolding. For experienced meditators, which you all are, one way of finding the balance of right effort, of all these three different kinds, you know, finding the balance so that we're not over-efforting, we're not pushing, we're not forcing, and we're also not being lazy. We're not just indulging. One way of finding this balance is through understanding two quite different perspectives on practice. And I call these two perspectives building from below and swooping from above. And if you've read one Dharma, you might be familiar with this. The building from below approach starts right with our awareness of suffering. Now it sees the suffering we're in. It understands how attachment is the cause of that suffering. It's really right there in the nitty-gritty of our experience. We're open to it. We're honest with it. And we practice letting go of these attachments through insight into impermanence, insight into dukkha, insight into selflessness. So That's the building from below. We're right here, we're right where we are, and we're in there with the suffering and its causes. The swooping from above perspective begins with a glimpse or an intuition of what we could call the open, empty, nature of awareness It's recognizing the innate wakefulness of the mind that the very nature of mind is awareness And we learn to recognize and stabilize that recognition Now both of these approaches are well grounded in the Buddhist teachings Now the building from below approach Here's what the Buddha said about ignorance and suffering. He said, I see no beginning to beings who obstructed by ignorance and ensnared by craving are hurrying and hastening through this round of rebirths. There's just no beginning to the ignorance. It has always been there, driving the craving, driving this hurrying and hastening, which we're all familiar with. The other perspective, which understands the mind to be fundamentally pure, although the ignorance and other defilements are seen as beginningless, they are also seen as not being intrinsic to the mind. And the Buddha talked about this side also. He said, defilements arise out of conditions and pass away when the conditions are no longer there. The mind, monks, is luminous, but it is defiled by visiting defilements. The nature of the mind is luminous, but it is defiled by visiting defilements, not intrinsic to the mind itself. So the different approaches, you know, of building from below or swooping from above, are simply highlighting one or the other of these understandings beginningless in ignorance, if that's what's being highlighted, then we get right in there with it and really see what are its causes. How can we be free? If we're highlighting the essential purity of the mind, then our practice is learning to recognize and stabilize that. Now, very commonly, we hear these two approaches And our minds might fall right into its usual pattern of judging. Oh, this one is right, this one is not right, I like this, I don't like that. I think it's most helpful to understand that both of these perspectives are simultaneously true. So it's not that one is right and one is wrong, or one is better, or one is worse, or one is higher, one is lower. They're both true. So we need to be honest, we really need to be honest and truthful about where we are in our practice and which approach will be most helpful. Farm minds are continually disturbed and just jumping from one thing to another, you know, with little ability to rest anywhere the suggestion to rest, to abide in one's fundamentally pure nature, probably is not going to be that helpful. You know, we're sitting and our minds are just doing its thing. Yes, abide in your natural purity. Okay. That may not be the most skillful approach for us at that time. And the Dalai Lama, and he was talking of the great Tibetan yogi in St. Milarepa. He was talking of how Milarepa had to face tremendous difficulties in his practice and exerted tremendous effort and struggle. There's there's one there's one story of Milarepa, who, at the end of his life, you know, he attained, so it said, you know, full enlightenment, full realization realizing the essential purity of mind. And just at the end of his life, he wanted to, to pass on the secret, the secret teachings to his disciples, particularly to his senior disciple. So it's said that he called you know, this disciple. Uh, Miller Aper was on some mountaintop someplace, you know, and he called for this, this disciple to come meet him you know, in this special place. And the disciple, very you know, excited to be getting the true secret teachings of this great master. He makes this long trek, spends days, he finally gets, he meets with Milarepa, you know, Milarepa prepares him for these secret teachings, and said that he turns around, bends over, lifts his robe, and shows him the calluses on his butt. That was the teaching that even for great yogis like Milarepa, it's not that enlightenment or realization, oh, yes, the mind is naturally pure. OK, I'm enlightened. It takes effort to realize this. And so from both approaches, you know, whether we're, we're building from below or swooping from above, it really takes finding the right kind of balance, the right kind of effort. On the other side, you know, it may be that we are caught in a lot of striving, a lot of self-judgment, a lot of doubt. At a certain point, remembering the teachings on the essential purity of the mind can be a tremendous opening for us. can be just what is needed at the time, when we're caught in a lot of struggling and ambition and striving, and to remember, yeah, the mind is essentially pure. There is this innate wakefulness of mind. It may just, that teaching may be just a reminder, may be just what is needed, so that we can relax into a place of greater openness and greater peace. And a phrase that I was using a lot on my last retreat, in just this way, as this reminder to myself, you know, when I could feel myself caught in that wanting mind or expecting mind or struggling mind, the phrase I used frequently was already aware. The mind is already aware don't have to struggle don't have to strive don't have to be looking for something it's a question of settling back oh yes already aware and every time that phrase came to my mind I could feel just that dropping back into the nature of awareness into that innate wakefulness. There is both a strength and a weakness in each of these approaches. But we can find a very profound balance of right effort, because the strength of one addresses the weakness of the other. So when we can hold both perspectives and see them both as skillful means and learn how to use them as skillful means, it's really a way of staying right on course, finding that balance of what right effort means. The dangers of each are expressed uh, vividly in two of ancient Greek myths. You know. And one of these myths was the myth of Icarus, you know, who wanted to fly, and he got these wings of wax, but he flew too close to the sun, and the, the wings melted, and he crashed to the earth. That's the swooping, that's the danger of swooping from above. You know, we can start flying high, and yes, the mind is essentially pure, innately wakeful, but we can come crashing to Earth from this approach in several ways. We can confuse the space-like nature of awareness. You know, awareness is often likened to space, open, empty, unobstructed. But we can confuse that with what we might call spaced-outness. Spaced-outness is not the innate wakefulness of mind. Or we might get identified with subtle states of consciousness. You know, sometimes in our practice, in our meditation, as it, as it deepens, we can be experiencing tremendous peace, tremendous calm, tremendous clarity, tremendous stillness. If we're identifying with those states, which is easy to do, then again we come crashing down and that is not resting in awareness there's a subtle identification there a subtle fixation a subtle holding we might be identified with awareness itself there can be an identification with awareness with knowing well I'm the one knowing I'm the one aware another way of crashing to the ground Well, we might take a few moments of clear seeing, of genuine recognition, to be enlightenment itself. You know, we might well have moments where we really are in that open, empty awareness, and then have this, got it. This is it. Shinul, who's one of the great Korean Zen masters of. 11th century maybe the 12th he wrote something so apt in this regard he said so how could you neglect the gradual cultivation of mind simply because of one moment of awakening after awakening you must be constantly on your guard if deluded thoughts suddenly appear do not follow after them reduce them again and again until you reach the unconditioned Then and only then would your practice reach completion. So it's recognizing all of these dangers of the swooping from above. The other Greek myth, which highlights the dangers in building from below, is the myth of Sisyphus you know, how to keep rolling the boulder up to the top of the, the hill, the mountain, and just as it got to the top, it would fall back down again. So this endless pushing of the, the boulder up the hill. Well, Stephen Mitchell, in his book, Parables and Portraits, it's, this is a book of his own poetry, uh, he wrote this little piece called The Myth of Sisyphus. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a tragic hero, condemned by the god to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he is permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. So in the building from below approach, sometimes we become, like Sisyphus, we become fixated on our suffering, you know, on our efforts to be free. We can lose sight of the freedom that is already there, in those moments when the mind is free of defilement. We don't appreciate, we can be so caught in the battle with our suffering and with the and with ignorance that we skip over, we pass over the recognition of those moments when the mind is free of defilement. And appreciating the freedom and the openness that is there in those moments Or we miss seeing the essential transparency of the defilements themselves. Because whatever it is that's arising, whether it's desire, or anger, or fear, or hatred, or envy, or jealousy, whatever, the long list of defilements, it's true that when we're caught in them, this tremendous suffering, but they are essentially empty, empty of self. There is no substantiality to them. So if we're caught in this struggle with our suffering, we can easily miss seeing the emptiness of these mind states. So in our exploration of right effort, We find which view, which perspective, actually works for us at any given time. If we're caught in the great struggle with our suffering, we might well want to practice a little swooping from above, remembering the essential purity, already aware and coming back to that recognition. If we're simply spaced out in a kind of open awareness that is not free, then we might well want to build from below and really note extremely precisely exactly what's happening moment to moment. If we understand these various points of view as different skillful means, skillful means to liberate our minds, then we can use them to complement each other, rather than see them in opposition. Because we understand that freedom is the vital issue for us, it's not our ideas about it. And we see that it's the exploration and the practice and the application of right effort which makes this freedom possible. So That's the great gift of this retreat for you. It's the opportunity to explore this, to find this, to find the balance. Because understanding right effort is the root of all accomplishment. No, it makes freedom possible. It is this unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of this holy life. It's heartwood and its end. Let's sit for just a couple of minutes. May the merit of our practice be joined together, the merit of all the wholesome actions of the three times, of past, of present, of future. Together, may it all be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, and the liberation of all beings.